following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Certainly, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a person, I'm told there are some people that kind of like living in a state of agitation and turmoil with other people, but I think those people are quite rare. I think most of us really enjoy the peace that comes from harmonious relationships, right? Uh, about a year ago, I think it was around Christmas time, I'm not sure the exact time, but I was sitting at uh, at Starbucks, uh, kind of by the big glass window where you could see out on the street. And uh, there was this Thai couple out there, fairly young, and they had a baby, maybe a year old or so. And you could tell that this couple was in the midst of this huge brawl. I mean, they hadn't gotten to blows yet, but it didn't take a real rocket scientist to figure out that these, this couple was not having fun. And they were not living in peace. And I'm watching this interaction, and there's just this, you can just sense, even through the glass, I mean, it's so strong, through the glass, you could sense this tension as there's some disagreement about something. And uh, as it kind of unfolds before my eyes, the, the sad, it really was just sad and heartbreaking. Um, the, the, the man, the husband, um, was just a very crafty, conniving guy, and uh, in order to balance things in his power and get his way, he walked up to his wife and he grabbed their baby out of her arms and, and kept the child to, to himself. And it was clear that the mom wanted to just leave, that she wanted to you know, get on the song towel and, and take out and to kind of desert him. But all of a sudden now she's stuck because she doesn't want to be with the guy, but she doesn't want to leave her baby. And he goes inside, and you can just see her standing outside kind of powerless and, and angry and hurt and confused all, all at one time. And he comes back out and she tries to take the baby and he goes back in. It was just horrible, horrible. You see this unfolding. And you know, we've all, maybe not experienced that, except we've all been in places and times like that where we've been in that kind of conflict where, uh, you know, if you, could, if, if you could kill and get away with it, you know, you would, right? Uh, and nobody wants to live there, right? And one of the cool things, as is, is Paul has taught in the first part of Ephesians, is that Jesus, one of the great works of Christ on the cross, is that he brought to us peace. And in chapter 2, he paints this great picture of how you know, the Jews and Gentiles used to live at hostility and animosity toward each other, hating each other. But through the work of Christ on the cross, he brought peace between these two groups. And now they are made into one. And there is this unity, uh, this peace that comes, that's to characterize our relationships. So the church ought to be a place where people live happily ever after, where there is oneness and unity and harmony in our relationships. Okay? So it's, it's to be one of the things, in fact, that, that marks us apart. It should be one of the things, in fact, that attracts the world to us that they see in us a people who just get along and love each other and have this unity and care and, and uh, oneness that draws them to us. Because they know how to fight, right? And so in chapter 4, Paul begins in this 
as he turns the corner, really looks at practical things. In chapters 14 through 6, he's teaching us practical things about how we live this out. And so he starts off with this very important topic of unity and keeping peace. So let's read uh, verses 1 through 6, chapter 4. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, or literally a prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your, uh, because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. We'll stop there. Paul gives some uh, just incredible help for us to practice unity and to really experience in our relationships, especially within the body of Christ, peace and harmony. Uh, and he starts off by talking, really giving the, the theme or the kind of the thesis statement for the next three chapters. He says, I want you to walk worthy of your calling. And that phrase really governs the whole next three chapters. And what he talks about in these next three chapters is really instructing us how to walk worthy of our calling. And he spent the first three chapters really explaining uh, our calling, what it is we're called to. And we're called to some wonderful things. We're called to this incredible spiritual blessings in Christ. We are called to a life made holy and blameless, not by our doing, but by the work of Christ. We're called to holiness through His work. We are called to be His children. We are called to share in the riches of His goodness and grace. And he uses this Excessive language to describe the the wealth of God's grace and kindness. We're called to share in a glorious inheritance of all that God possesses. We are called to peace and unity. As he talks about the Jews and Gentiles being united, we're called to this life of oneness. We're called to be the very temple of God, the very dwelling abode, the the home of God. Uh, We're called to know His presence in our hearts and lives in a very real and powerful way. And we're called to know His love that's beyond knowing. right? So we're called to some pretty wonderful, cool blessings, some incredible privileges. But along with that, He begins to unfold for us now that you know it's not all just about the, the privilege, that there is some responsibility that goes with it. And that's true of most positions. You know, if, uh, uh, if you are a senior in high school... You know, you get all the privileges of... I don't know what the privileges are of being a senior. I guess you get to tell everybody else what to do, I guess, right? But there's also some responsibility. You're not supposed to act like a sixth grader anymore. Or a third grader. You're supposed to act like the position, right? Uh, same thing... Uh, I, I love the picture in Scripture of King Saul on the day of his coronation. Right? King Saul's been anointed as king over all Israel. He's assuming this great position of privilege and responsibility. And where is he? hiding in the baggage, right? Hardly living up to his position, right? He's not really living the part very well. You know, he's out there underneath somebody's you know, coat, hiding amongst the luggage. Not really living the part. So Paul says here, you got to start living the part. 
You are royal heirs to the throne of God. Okay, You are joint heirs with Christ. You are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. You are His children. So act like it. Right? That's what he's saying here. And he says, this is what it looks like to act like those who are in this special place. And uh, the, the first thing that he talks about, he addresses in, the, in chapter 4, the first half of chapter 4, is this issue of living in oneness or unity. He says, walk in oneness. Walk according to your call. Walk in oneness, unity. And uh, the focus um, of chapter 4 is really on oneness. And the fo- focal verse of this section is really uh, verse 3. Uh, everything else grammatically leads up to this. And this is really the main verb, main thrust of the whole sentence in verse 3 where he says, make every effort to, to, be, to live in oneness. Okay, make every effort to, to keep unity. The word there, every effort, is a word of great urgency and haste. It's the kind of word that would, you would use if your house was on fire. And you needed, you know, or, so, or even better yet, if somebody else's house was on fire, and I went up and said, Paul, Paul, your house is on fire. Okay, it's a word that expresses some kind of urgency. You don't say, oh, by the way, your house is burning down. You know, there's, some, there's some haste to it. And there's this idea that your house is burning there, down, therefore, do something, Right? Call, call somebody or get a bucket of water or something, right? And that's the word that Paul uses here. And it really highlights how important this is to Paul. And it's been repeated in the first three chapters of the book, and now he, he kind of hammers it again. He says, look, get on this. Okay, This is not something to take casually or lightly. It's not something that you can work on later. He says, right now, today, right now, you got to work on this, Okay? And what you need to work on, he says, is preserving or guarding or protecting unity. Uh, the, the, the important, uh, or the foundation really for this, is that Jesus, through his work on the cross, as he describes in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, is that Jesus has already done this work. He says that Jesus is our peace, that he broke down the wall of hostility, dividing us, and that Jesus has created in his church, in the body of Christ, he has created unity. Right? Our job is not to create unity. We don't need to somehow uh, negotiate peace treaties with each other. God has already done that. Jesus has already done that through his work on the cross. But we have a job or a responsibility to guard it or maintain it or keep it up, to preserve it and protect it. Um, and there's, there's really three reasons behind, I think, the... the priority of this. The first is that it really is the eternal goal of God's redemptive plan. In, uh, in Ephesians 1, verse 10, he says, in fact, let me read it. Uh, it says, and this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring, God will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. This is the goal. This is the plan. This is what God's ultimate redemptive purpose is about, is bringing everything together in oneness and unity under Christ's authority. Uh, Second thing it's important because it's why Jesus died. Um, If we ignore ignore unity, we are really ignoring uh, the the, the work of Christ on the cross. We are saying that his death and what he sought to accomplish isn't important, if it's not important to us. But thirdly, and, and most significantly... It's important because it really is about who and what God is in himself. Okay? And in the last part of this section, 
he has this very interesting uh, stanza, almost poem, declaration, where he talks about all these ones, right? Verse 4, he says, there's one body, one spirit, um, one hope, one Lord, speaking probably there of Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is overall, in all, and through all. Uh, Paul uses a couple different words for the word one here, but the most important and significant one is one that points back to the uh, Old Testament, to the Shema, in Deuteronomy 6, which says, who knows what the Shema is? The Lord your God is one. The Lord your God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the God is one. And uh, it, it meant, first of all, that there was only one God, that there weren't other gods, that there weren't multiple gods, that there's one God. But it also says a lot about the nature and character of God. God is one. Okay, he's not, there, there's nothing in God that's divided. All right? There's no tension or conflict between what God thinks and what he does. So God never does something and looks back on it and goes, oh, you know, I kind of wish I hadn't done that. I wish I'd done this instead. Okay? There's, not, there's nothing divided in God. He is absolutely one. So that his heart, his will, his thinking, his planning, his doing is absolutely all one thing. His love, his holiness, and his righteousness are all one thing. Okay? His goodness and his judgment are all one thing. There's, there's nothing in God that can be divided or parted out. Right? Uh, his oneness is so, so much part of what God is that it extends into his three-personness. Okay? Now, this gets really confusing. This is kind of beyond me. But you know, the, the Trinity is one God in three persons. But in three persons, he still is one. So that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have their own unique thoughts and hearts and will but it's all one. There's never any division between what the Father thinks and what the Son thinks. Between what the Father thinks and what the Son does. Between what the Son intends and what the Spirit carries out. It's all one. All right. So, uh, part of God's eternal being is oneness. And so when He redeems us, when He saved us, when He does this work of redemption in, our, in, in us... Uh, his ultimate goal is that we would come into the same oneness that, that God has within his own being. Right? So that's why Jesus says and prays in John chapter 17, I pray that these followers who come after, that they would be one as I and the Father are one. The Father living in me and me living in the Father. Okay? So what Jesus is teaching here is that the, the pinnacle of his work it's not just that we would be good and holy individuals, but that we would become really one in heart and mind and will with God. All right? And, and that's why our unity is so important. Because it's one of the greatest displays and demonstrations of God's character in us. That we're not divided. We're not, we're not uh, conflicted. We're not going in different directions. Not only inwardly, but within the body of Christ. That there is unity, not division. Well, um, the, the bottom line is this, is this is really what maturity is. Now, the reality is, if you're honest, if we think about this whole concept, we know that um, we are not one within ourselves, right? When, we compare, when I compare my life to God's existence, God may never be confused or be torn between two things. But I'm constantly torn between two things, right? 
Uh, in fact, Paul describes this brilliantly in Romans chapter 7, where he says, That which I long to do, I don't do. And those things I desperately want to, uh, don't want to do, those are the very things that I do. And he paints this great picture of this internal dividedness, right? And uh, we are not single of mind or heart or will. We find that our mind thinks one thing, our feelings feel something else, our will wants to do something else. And so we're constantly kind of torn in dividedness internally, right? You know, we want to lose weight, but we want to eat donuts and ice cream, right? Some days it's a losing weight day, some days it's a donut and ice cream day. We're divided, right? We want to get in shape, but we also want to take a nap. Uh, We want to be spiritual and get up bright and early in the morning and pray. We also want to sleep, right? We've got all these conflicts and divisions. We want to be a nice person, but sometimes we're not, right? So... So there's this, you know, we're not one within ourselves. Uh, so if we're not one within ourselves, how are we going to be one within the body of Christ, right? And we recognize that this dividedness in us is, is immaturity. And I, I think you could, one way to describe what spiritual maturity is, it's when we come to a place of oneness of heart, mind, and soul, where we're so filled with the heart and mind of God that his mind, his thoughts are our thoughts, that his will is our will, and that we have a maturity where we just naturally think and do what God would think and do because we are filled with him. And that's really the prayer at the, at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. He says, I pray that you would be filled with this love of Christ, that you would know this love beyond knowing, so that you would be filled to the fullness with the fullness of God filled up with the fullness of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that we are filled with the heart and mind and will of, of, of God in every area of our life. Right? So that that governs everything in our life. His, his will, His thoughts, His purpose, His decree, His word governs everything about our life and creates a singleness within us that gives us clear focus and direction and purpose about our life. Now, when do we experience that fully? Well, after we're dead, right? Because we all know that there are always those, those conflicted things within us. But as we come to possess and no one understand the depth of God's love for us, it should have this transforming effect where we take on more and more and more the heart and mind of Christ. And that's godliness. Now, um, if, if all believers could instantly become this mature, okay, if we came to Christ and instantly... God just took our brain out and put a new brain in that's completely his mind. Took our heart, put out completely in a new heart that's will and purpose was completely his will. Boy, life would be easy, wouldn't it? You know, if he just removed all that dividedness within and made us instantly spiritually mature beings, unity would be a piece of cake because... You know, what I think about disciplining children is exactly what Denise would think about disciplining children. There would never have to be a discussion because we would be of one mind on the issue, right? The way I think we should spend money, the way she thinks we should spend money, never have to have a discussion about it, right? No division, no dividedness. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that's not the way it is, right? There, There is not oneness of mind. We have lots of different opinions, thoughts, ideas, 
Okay? Of course, we all know that our thoughts and ideas are the godly biblical ones. Right? We all know ours are correct. So the maturity thing is not on our part. It's all the other people that are immature. Right? And, and that's what causes all the conflict, right? Um, in fact, probably we know that our, we, you know, we are, if we're honest, we all know we're not perfectly mature. But we also understand that my immaturity is not what causes problems. At least not with me, right? What causes conflict and divisions is other people's immaturity, right? When it clashes with me, you know, their annoying habits, their impatience, their nagging or criticizing, you know, their childish behavior. My childish behavior never bothers me, right? I'm happy with that. But when other people are childish, it just kind of grates on me, and it causes me to not like them. Uh, their anger, their negativeness, their stinginess, their selfishness, okay, all these things that are immaturity in other people great on us, right, and cause us problems. So, so Paul is not unrealistic in how this all works. He urges unity. He knows that Jesus has made the way for unity. He knows that as we grow and mature, unity becomes more and more natural and easy. But he's not unrealistic about where we all really live. Paul knows human nature far too well. He knows that even among believers, there is a great deal of dividedness within division without, immaturity. So he gives us some help to deal with this. How do we keep the peace uh, when everybody around us is so immature, even though we are so together, you know, dealing with all these other people that are not as together as us? How do we deal with that? Well, he, he, he explains, he, he um, urges us to allow four guards or four sentries to be posted around our relationships that will guard or keep the peace. All right, so let's look real briefly at these four guards of our relationships to help us keep the peace. And uh, I'm going to kind of follow the same format with each of these. We'll look real briefly at the biblical teaching about this. We'll look at the example of Jesus and then a couple brief thoughts about how to practice it in our own life. The first guard, he says, uh, with, with humility... Keep the peace with humility. Uh, the biblical teaching, the, the word itself, really simply means to make yourself lower in rank or position than somebody else. Okay, to put yourself at a lower status than somebody else. Uh, in, in classical Greek, or in Greek where it was used outside of the Bible, it really had the idea of somebody who had little social status or significance or very little social importance in society. Um, in fact, in virtually all of its uses in, in, in the classical Greek outside of Scripture, uh, it's a derogatory term. Okay? It means you know, to be small, little, and it uses it in a very derogatory sense. Right? Uh, now, of course, in the Old Testament and New Testament, this low position is actually viewed in a very high manner. Right? It is a, a trait to be pursued in our life. We are to be humble. Uh, and uh, first and foremost, we are to be humble. We are to consider ourselves low in our position in relationship with God. All right? We are, in comparison to who God is, His holiness, we are low before Him. 
right? Um, one of the best teachings uh, of, of humility comes from Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, where Jesus teaches, it was about that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked him to put, um, asked who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that humility is becoming childlike. Now a child, no child has to Pretend to be small, right? No child thinks, you know, I'm really six foot tall, I weigh 250 pounds, and I'm going to sit on all the adults in my life. But because I'm only six years old, I'm going to pretend I'm little. Right? Kids don't do that. Kids know they're little. And kids know that, uh, that big people in their life could squash them, right? Okay, they just know that they're at a disadvantage, Okay, they know they, they, they're not as smart as us. They know they're not as independent as, as us. They're not as large. They're not as strong. And so children instinctively see themselves as small, as under kind of the whole world around them. <clears throat> I, remember, I remember feeling this as a child, and I could not wait to get big and you know, be out from underneath all these adults constantly telling me what to do. Right? Well, Jesus says humility is being childlike. And that doesn't mean we pretend to be something that we're not. Okay? It doesn't mean, well, I know I'm big and important, and I know I'm together, but I'm going to pretend I'm not because it's humble, right? No, 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 no. no. <clears throat> That's not humility. Humility is seeing the smallness of our position. Okay? Humility is seeing the truth and reality of the littleness and insignificance of our life. Well, how do we do that? Well, we do that first by measuring our life in comparison to God and His majesty. Now, you see, the deal is what we want to do is we want to compare our life with other people. And we can selectively pick people who are quite inferior to us. Because it's not hard. You know, if you look far enough, you'll find somebody who's not as bright as you or not as whatever as you. Right? And we want, to, we want to think of our status and position in relationship to other people. But, but that's not where humility begins. Humility begins by seeing ourselves in relationship to God. Uh, seeing where sin has taken us, where our finiteness has limited us in relationship to the almighty, powerful God of the universe. Okay? And that before Him, we are insignificant and small. All right? And so it's kind of like you know, looking down at ants. From our vantage point... I don't go, you know, if I see a string of ants walking in a column, I don't look down and say, well, that, that one's bigger than that one. <laughs> yeah, they're just all small, right? And from God's vantage point, as he looks down, he doesn't say, oh, you're, you're more important than that one. No, we're all just bugs. You know, we're all just little people doing our job, right? <clears throat> the example of Jesus. Uh, the best, Jesus modeled this incredibly on his life on earth in many ways, but it's most poignantly stated in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. But be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ, that Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. 
Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself further in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Um, Interestingly, Jesus was not lower than God. Jesus was not inferior to God. But it says that he did what? He made himself low. He humbled himself by taking on human form, human flesh, and human status or position. Again, Jesus wasn't pretending to be something he wasn't. He actually took on a low status. He didn't come as a high king. He didn't come in his own importance or glory. But he came as nothing. Born in a stable, lived a normal, normal life to a carpenter's son. He became really nothing. And allowed himself to take his nothingness to the point of being shamefully crucified as a criminal. Okay, he, he took, that, that's humility. Okay, allowing himself to go to the bottom. Not just to pretend or put on some kind of show, but to be nothing. To be nothing for our sake. Uh, this, is, this is vital in any relationship. And if there's anything that kills relationships, it's our own pride. Our own sense of self-importance. Our own sense of needing self-glory. You know, needing respect from others. Kills any relationship. Right? So Paul says one of the first guards of our relationship. But again, all this is focused at me. Okay? It's how I deal with the immaturity of other people. Okay? This doesn't mean that I deal with the immaturity of other people by... Reminding them of how not humble they are, right? It's like, well, you know, you wouldn't have all these problems if you were so, weren't so proud. This is all focused at me. Okay, what I need to do to guard my part of the relationship. He says, first of all, you need to take on an attitude of humility, which first begins with seeing our lowness before God. Uh, the reality is, none of us really have it all together that much spiritually. And what spiritual success and maturity we do have was not ever anything that we accomplished by our own hard work. It's the process or hand of God at work in us. So we don't really have anything to be proud about other than the work of Christ in us. Uh, We are all to be childlike, uh, that is, insignificant, unimportant, all right, in relationship to people around us. it means, as Jesus did, it means making ourselves lower than others. Okay, it means putting ourselves as less important and less, uh, less status, less position than those around us. Uh, now, this doesn't have anything to do with shunning duty or responsibility. Okay, if you're in charge of an organization, if you're a leader in some way, if, if you have leadership, it doesn't mean not being a leader. But it means being a leader who takes his responsibility seriously, but not the position, right? Who seeks to serve others well and do the job well, taking responsibility for those under your care. But in terms of your relationship with them, putting yourselves as less important and under them, right? It means um, laying aside the perks and benefits of position, and giving up your rights to the status, glory, honor, respect, and rights that go with leadership, that go with the position you're in. 
right? So this is the, it's the worst of both worlds. You've got to do all the work with none of the glory. Okay, that's what it is, right? The good news is people will like you better if you do that, right? You will have peace with those you lead. You will have peace with those who are in your care, okay? Uh, really, it comes down to serving others willingly. Putting in yourself in the place of service with those who you work with. Whether you, they're over you or under you, you serve them. It's funny, it's, sometimes that's harder, easier said than done. And it's interesting how sometimes, uh, especially in Asian culture, how hard it is sometimes to serve people. And in our home, we have these four Thai girls who live with us. And uh, I try to, not always, but sometimes I actually try to be a servant. And uh, one of the fun things I like to do is just help clean up the table after we eat, do the dishes. Oh, these girls, they just, they just will not let me. They will not let me outserve them. And they just make quite clear that they're, it's not going to happen, right? They're not going to let me serve them. But we've got to keep striving to do that, putting ourselves where we're not important. We can serve anybody. Okay, second thing. Second guard. He says, uh, with humility, with gentleness. Uh, I would call this the guard of friendliness. The word translated gentle could be translated many different ways. I think for me, the one that captures it best is the idea of just general friendliness. Okay? Um, when you think about the qualities of friendliness, what is it that makes a person friendly? Well, they're accommodating. They're, they're gentle and mild. They are patient. Um, they're nice, right? They're just nice. Right? They're not harsh, overbearing, mean. Okay? They're not intimidating. Okay? Now that's kind of the word, the idea that's captured in this word. Uh, in the Old Testament, this word was used uh, to translate the Hebrew word that had the idea of, of a person who had no rights. Okay, a person who was kind of at the bottom of the scale, bottom of the food chain. A person like orphans, widows, aliens, who had no rights, were basically defenseless, and were often prone to being cheated or exploited. Okay. Uh, that's the idea of this word in that context. Paul uses this word in 2 Corinthians 10, 1, when he says, Now I, Paul, appeal to you with gentleness and kindness and the kindness of Christ. Um, Jesus uses this word in Matthew 11 when he said, Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, humble and friendly at heart. In other words, we can go to Jesus and he can teach us and he's not, he's not the mean teacher with the ruler who smacks us if we make mistakes. Okay? Um, Tom, you had a teacher, a Thai teacher like that. Tom had a teacher who's Thai teacher who smacked him. And, I, and I've tried that with Tom. and It's not quite the same for me. So. I don't hit hard enough. There you go. Jesus isn't like that. He's a teacher who is friendly, who is not intimidating. He's kind and gentle. Uh, the example of Jesus comes from, uh, actually, the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout and triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, on a donkey's colt. Okay, the word there that's used, uh, humble, same word, translated the same word. Uh, 
he's friendly. Okay, and if in, in those days, especially in Jesus' day, late, later Old Testament time period, by that time horses had been introduced, and if you wanted a king, uh, if you wanted to impress somebody, you you know you came on a horse, a big horse, kind of you know spitting fire and flaming nostrils and muscular and strong, and you, know, you come bold and intimidating, riding on a charger, this great steed, right? Okay, well, the, Jesus comes plodding along on a donkey, you know. Kind of, you get this picture like Friar Tuck, you know, this kind of happy, fat monk plodding along, pretty much harmless, right? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus comes not as this great king in power. He comes as this happy little guy on a donkey, right? Friendly. He's a friendly king, right? Uh, that's the picture and the example of Jesus. He comes as a friend, not intimidating. Right? So how do we practice that? Well, in our relationships, we need to have the same <clears throat> attitude. Uh, you know, if, people, if people's impression of us is as somebody who's intimidating, if we hear people say to us, oh, I, I can't really talk to them because they feel like they have a wall up. Right? Well, that means you're not a friendly person. Okay? That means you've got to work on that. Uh, if people don't describe you as being generally nice, well, work on it, okay? You should be nice because it really goes a long way in making peaceful relationships, all right? Uh, another significant meaning of this word that affects our relationships is that, that we do give up our rights. This is a hard one, okay? It means that in relationships, being gentle and friendly means giving up our rights within a relationship, all right? Uh, we, should have, we should claim no rights over other people in our relationships. We come with no agendas. We come claiming no rights. That means I don't have to get my own way in the relationship. Okay? I don't have to get my own way. Well, yeah, right, I don't, right? <laughs> okay? It's easy for you to say. Now, how many times have we killed our relationships because we have pushed our own rights. We're going to get our own way. right? And it kills relationships. It kills relationships. Jesus, amazingly, Jesus did not push to get his own way. In fact, he so allowed others to take advantage of him, they killed him. Okay? Did he have a right to stand up and defend himself? Absolutely. But he waived those rights. And he let them do whatever they will. Right? In his, in his friendliness, in his gentleness. Right? It means I don't need to be right. right? Uh, I, I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at correcting people because I'm right and I just know the right, you know. And my wife just is so excited when I correct her. She just loves it when I tell her she's wrong. Right? Well, we don't, you know, th- that kills relationships. Okay? Um, great book, you know, how to talk to your, talk so people will listen. You want to shut people up, tell them they're wrong. Okay, correct them. Okay, that's a communication killer every time. It does not bring peace, peace to relationships. Okay? You can know you're right. You don't have to, we don't have to, we don't have to defend that, do we? It's a relationship killer. Uh, we don't have to defend ourselves. Okay? When we're attacked, when people tell us they're right and we know they're wrong, we don't have to defend ourselves. We can be gentle, right? 
we'll let God sort it out. We'll let God correct them. Right? That's the character trait, the guard of friendliness. <clears throat> Next one, the guard of patience. Uh, patience is just what it is. It's being patient with people. It has the idea of slowness in avenging wrongs. Uh, great parable Jesus taught. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so he, the master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and children and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me. And you know the story that the master forgave, had pity, had compassion, forgave his debt, and he exercised patience. He did not carry out uh, his wrath, his right. The guy turns around, the guy owes him a few dollars. What does he do? He uh, threatens to put him in jail. Interestingly, this friend begs for the same thing. He said, please have patience with me. But he wasn't patient. And he threw him in jail, demanding everything be paid back. Uh, the example of God, it says in Numbers 14, 18, that the Lord is slow to anger, filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. Uh, God is slow to anger. That's patience. Patience is being slow to anger. It's being slow to respond uh, with judgment or to demand people pay what they owe us. Okay, that's patience. Um, ultimately, the practice of it simply means not holding on to the wrongs against us. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not keep a record of wrongs against us. It means when people do wrong things, when they hurt us, when they harm us, we don't respond in anger. We are slow to anger. We ultimately are forgiving. We forgive their wrongs. We forgive their sins. At least seven times, right? Seven times and you're done, right? Seventy times seven. So you've got to really keep track of that one. Um, Last one, the guard of suffer the lo- the guard of suffering long. You know, the biblical word is long suffering, but I like the word of suffer. I like flipping that around. The guard of suffering a long time. Uh, in the Bible, this word is used. Um, Romans three twenty five says, "For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood." This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he uh, suffered long, or it's translated, when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in past times. We know the history of Israel, that God did not punish them as he could have. He suffered long dealing with Israel's sin. Uh, Many translations translate this word forbear. Uh, a good way to put it is just that you put up with people. Okay, You just put up with people. When they drive you crazy, when they are annoying, when they do things wrong against you, when they gossip about you, when they say harsh things to your face, you just put up with it. Uh, even 
though it may deeply hurt you. Uh, you just keep patiently suffering that. Right? Patiently suffering that. Uh, <clears throat> this past year, in some of our dealings with people, some of my dealings with people, there was one period where there's just some real conflict going on, and I was trying to be long-suffering. I really was. I was trying, trying, trying. And I was doing pretty well, but finally one day, it's just, they crossed the line. They just crossed the line. And I, I, was, I was done suffering. I was not going to suffer anymore. I was done. And I just lashed back. <clears throat> all my anger and frustration that had been storing up for all this time, right? Well, that, that really helped the relationship go farther. You know, that just really made peace, right? Yes, being long-suffering. Well, those are the four guards, and they, they, will, they will bring peace. Now, you know, some of you may be thinking, does that mean I always just have to lay down? Does that mean I can't have boundaries in relationships with people? Does that mean... I just expect people, people to be immature forever? Well, no. And uh, next week we'll look at the other side of it. We do have a role and a responsibility to help people mature. All right? Um, and we ought to be maturing each other. But in that process, when we are not, in our moments when we're not mature, in those times when we are very immature and childish in our responses to people, we, on our part, can keep peace and can maintain unity by posting these four guards around those relationships, being humble, uh, being friendly and kind, being patient, and just suffering, just suffering. Uh, that's what Jesus did. Uh, Jesus, uh, you know, in, in Matthew 17 came down from the mountain and his disciples had not been successful in casting a demon out. And Jesus said, you know, Jesus was right on the, he was at that point, right? And he said, you faithless and corrupt people, how long must I suffer? That's the word. That's the word, long suffering. How long do I have to put up with this? Well, he did put up with it, right? He wanted to do other things, but he endured. Right? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we all want to live in the oneness that you have designed and created and called us to. We want to enter into that place where we are living in oneness with the Father, oneness with the Son, where our life is in you and you are in us. And we are truly being transformed and our minds are being filled with your thoughts, with your will, with your heart. But Father, there's a, uh, there's a process, and we all know that we are not there yet. And we live in relationships with people who are not there yet. And we just ask and pray that you would help us in the midst of our flaws and faults and struggles to practice and, and to guard our relationships with these, these great qualities that will help us to maintain the peace. Uh, Lord, it's worth it to have peace in, in these relationships and to reflect your heart. It's an opportunity for us to really be Christ-like by doing what Jesus did as he walked with very immature people 
lived with uh, the unredeemed of the world and yet was uh, on his part always right in what he did. Lord, help us to be the same in, in our relationships, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.